Good morning, church. Good morning. I couldn't help but to see on the face of the men in here, there was this sense of excitement. There was a lot of chatter when I was in the lobby, and I'm just trying to figure out, man, what are the guys in here so excited about? And then it hit me. Once a year, this big event happens. And all the men are excited. They're looking forward to it. And so, men, if you've not signed up for the men's conference, <laughs> there's still time. The information desk here in the lobby has a sign-up roster, or you can get with your uh, local men's ministry representative to get signed up. But, men, we need you there. We need you there. Next Sunday is the last opportunity that you'll have to register, and the conference is the 24th of February. So, men, please go ahead. You've got this Sunday and then next Sunday to register. And there may be something else that the guys in here are excited about. I'm not sure, but I just did a little Google search into the history of the Super Bowl. And in 1969, Super Bowl III was one of the biggest long shots that was ever recorded in terms of the differential of a team being upset. The New York Jets defeated the heavily favored Baltimore Colts, and some of you remember when the Colts were in Baltimore. I do not. The Jets, led by quarterback Joe Namath, They were considered huge underdogs, but Namath famously guaranteed a victory before the game. And the Jets delivered, shocking the football world. The odds had the Colts favored by 18 points, and the Jets won by a long shot. Friends, there is a long shot that we really should care about. And it's found in Scripture. If you could stand with me and open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to go through the entire chapter, which is only 10 verses. And the Word of God reads, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands." Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said 
he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your great mercy. We could not put into words just how loving and merciful you are. You've given us your word, Father God, which is true as a warning, but also as encouragement for us. And today as we spend time with you in corporate worship, Father God, I pray that you would be amongst us. Open our ears and our hearts to your truth. Help me to speak clearly. Let souls cry out in repentance to you today, Lord. We ask that you would be with us during this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've titled this message, Long Shot. And if there's one thing, one thought I can leave with you today is that none are too far from receiving the mercy of God and abating his judgment when they turn from their wickedness and repent. I've used three main points to help illustrate this idea from the text. The first one is that there can be no repentance without a proclamation. The second one is that true repentance is revolutionary. And third, God's mercy awaits the repentant. If you're with us today and you've not been um, at our church the past few months, you're noticing that we're kind of getting to Jonah, but Pastor Ryan just preached through 1 Corinthians. Well, we're about four sermons through a five-sermon series on Jonah. These are kind of sprinkled in and there throughout Ryan's series on 1 Corinthians. And so today we pick up in our fifth, fourth sermon. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. On Jonah. We're going to look first at verses 1 through 4, as I mentioned with the first main point, that there can be no repentance without a proclamation. Beginning in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So if you have been listening to the sermon series on Jonah, you would remember these words. They sound awfully familiar. Well, that's because they are the exact same words that God used in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is intentional. It's not an accident that chapter 3 and chapter 1 seem to mimic each other a little bit. Jonah gets back on mission. This great mission that God had called him to, he deviated from, but Jonah's back on mission. Jonah got a second chance to do what God had sent him to do. Man, oh man, how good is our God of second chances. Amen? Amen. We have a God who is patient with us, and he gives us not only second chances, but some of us third, fourth Fifth, sixth, seventh, I can keep on going. What a good God we serve. God put Jonah back on mission. We see here the same three imperatives in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 that we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Arise, go, call out. Imperatives are 
little unique in the Hebrew language. They're not just verbs. They are powerful commands. And so God tells Jonah, arise, go, and call out. In verse 3 we read, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. It's not accidental that we continue to see this theme of great. Nineveh, the city itself was great in terms, in terms of its magnitude, its size, but it was also great in its wickedness. It was great in its influence. The Assyrian Empire was great. As a matter of fact, it was the greatest and largest power in the world at the time. These themes of great continue in this book. And it's important that we don't miss it because the greater that the city was, the greater the wickedness is, the greater the mercy of God. You can think of Nineveh as a modern-day Washington, D.C. in terms of its width. The city says, or the text says that the city was about three days of a journey. We'll consider the D.C. metropolitan area. We don't think Nineveh was exactly three days in terms of its circumference, but we do think that the surrounding area kind of comprise a great and vast city. And we see the text picks up in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned, or overthrown. Mic drop. We don't hear anything else from Jonah. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A couple things to note from this verse. First, we can see Jonah's lack of enthusiasm about this call. He seems to put minimal effort forth in warning the people of Nineveh, yet he still did follow God's command. It's amazing how much God can do with our little efforts. Amen, church? But he asks us to be obedient, and Jonah complied, and he calls out giving Nineveh a fighting chance to save their life. In World War II, the Battle of the Bulge was a major offensive launched by the Germans to break through the line which the Allies had formed, hoping to suffocate off and have a victory over Germany. The American forces found out, however, that through a German soldier that was captured, that the Germans had planned a massive ambush. And this piece of information was taken from this soldier and rushed to the front lines. The soldiers were warned by the information and were able to avoid a massacre that would have resulted because of the timeliness of the information that the American and allied forces received, they were able to prevent a large casualty, but also the war was able to come to an end quicker, giving the allies victory. Information is power. And Jonah had information which was dire to the Assyrians. He says, God knows what you're doing, and he's had enough. And there's nothing eloquent about Jonah's message. He's not very tactful. He didn't sugarcoat anything. There were only the hard, cold facts. But hidden within those hard, cold facts 
were the truth of a warm and loving and merciful God. God had given them 40 days, yet they didn't wait. But without a proclamation, there would have been no opportunity for them to repent. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 reads, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, we too must go and tell the good news. But the only way that the good news is actually good is if we consider the bad news within the good news. You see, Jesus talked about the bad news within the good news. There's one pastor that I referenced here, and he talks about the three points or three ideas of the bad news within the good news. He says that hell is a place of punishment after judgment. He also says that hell is described in imagery of fire and darkness where people lament. And hell is a place of annihilation and never-ending punishment. Friends, the only way that the good news is good is if we include the bad news in the gospel. Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 33 read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Let's pick it up again in verse 41 through 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse it, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked? or sick or in prison and did not minister to you, then he will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, and you did not do it to me. And these will go away in eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, our job is simple. Arise, go, and tell. We must share this truth, hopefully with a little more tact that Jonah did, but we must tell of the bad news within the good news. We have core competencies here at Nesbitt River Baptist Church, and they're a way for us to measure the spiritual growth of the members of our church. And as we consider whether or not we're growing spiritually in evangelism specifically, our fifth core competency reads, in evangelism through a growing compassion for those who do not know Christ 
and cultivating relationships with the lost and intentionally seeking opportunities to verbally share the gospel. Do you seek compassion for those who do not know Jesus? Or are you spiritually apathetic to the spiritual state of those around you? More specifically, are you growing in your compassion for your Nineveh? Have you ever considered for a second who is your Nineveh? Or what is your Nineveh? Our challenge is to ask the Spirit of God to convict our hearts, to first make us aware of our Nineveh, and to give us the strength and faith to arise, to go and to tell. And as we continue reading the text, we pick up the story in verse 5 with our second main point, that true repentance is revolutionary. The section begins in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. These are perhaps the most profound words in all of this book. The people of Nineveh believed God. Everything else in this passage all the way through verse 9 highlights the fact that the people believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. I remember hearing, uh, this was popular on Facebook a few years ago, if you were being charged with being a Christian in a court of law, is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian. That was always convicting for me. Well, let's consider for a second Nineveh. If they were being charged with repentance, is there not clear evidence in the text here that they fully and thoroughly repented? There are key signs of repentance that I'd like to highlight to you all. First, there was an intense spiritual mourning From the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth, the young, the old, the great, the small, the humans, the animals, the big animals, and the small animals. All put on sackcloth. They fasted. Let them not taste anything. Let them not feed. And water, let them not drink. And the king actually dethroned himself. He arose in verse 6. From his throne, he removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. This is a common illustration in the Old Testament of extreme distress. Another sign of spiritual repentance is a crying out to God for mercy. From his people. Verse 8 says, And let them 
call out to God mightily. Imagine if our praise, Pastor Brian, was mighty. And the last sign of genuine spiritual repentance we see here is that there was a turning from evil and accountability. The text says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It's one thing to feel bad when you've done something wrong. I do that all the time with my kids. I'm sorry. You know, I mess up, do whatever, forget to take the dishes out the dishwasher, forget to push the start button in the dryer for the clothes or something. I'm sorry, right? It's one thing to feel bad for what you've done. It's another thing to feel bad what you've done at what you've done and kind of assume a posture of um, repentance. But it's an entirely different event when you actually turn from your evil way. It's a challenge for me as a preacher to fully articulate just how profound and thorough and revolutionary their repentance was. The intent of the text is to convey that they completely wholly and utterly repentant to God. Verse 9 continues, and who knows, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Within godly repentance, friends, we also find hope. Within godly repentance, we also find hope. Without hope, repentance can lead to feelings of hopelessness, self-condemnation, and a sense of being trapped in one's mistakes. It, It may lead us to lack the motivation to actually forgive ourselves, to make amends. Ultimately, repentance without hope can result in a cycle of despair. And a feeling of being stuck in past mistakes without the possibility of a better future. But godly repentance includes hope. We see this thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 through 10. Pastor Ryan's preaching through 1 Corinthians. And Paul gives them the business. He lets it out. He lets them know that they erred. And it hurts him to do so, but he admonishes them. And so we see in 2 Corinthians the result of that godly admonishment. We pick it up in chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I, do, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, or as worldly grief produces death. As we continue in verse 9, I hope that you notice also the subtle thought, and we may not perish. It's interesting when we look at the idea of perishing 
and Jonah. And it's mentioned three times here, twice in chapter one and once in chapter three. The first was by the pagan captain who told Jonah to wake up and help them to figure out what was going on so that they may not perish. Then the sailors on the boat crying out to God, hoping that he may relent, that they may not perish. But yet we see the pagans very concerned about perishing. Jonah doesn't seem to be too concerned about it. He seems to be honestly a little indifferent. And I wish we had time to fully talk through Jonah's spiritual apathy. We'll save that for the next sermon. But friends, I'd like you to just consider what true repentance would look like in America today. What would it look like for the highest officials to dethrone themselves, to take off their robes, to put on sackcloth, and to soak in ashes? What would it look like for the American people, just like the Ninevites, to cry out to God for mercy? Friends, what if we were on the cusp of a great revival? If God did it in Nineveh, he can surely do it in America. And how do we as a church locally recognize genuine and sincere repentance amongst each other? One practical application would be considering restoration in church discipline. According to the Gospel Coalition, there are eight signs of repentance which should lead to restoration of church discipline. First, a repentant person is appalled by their sin. They make amends. They accept consequences. They don't command or forgive. They don't command or forgive, um, demand their forgiveness. Excuse me. They don't forgive their forgiveness. They don't demand that we forgive them. It's a little bit of mix up on words there. They feel the depth of their pain that they've caused. They change their behavior. They rent space to heal. And they're struck by forgiveness. They are moved by the fact that the church has forgiven them and it's seen in their lives. Friends, repentance and restoration go hand in hand. And if you find yourself outside of the will of God today, I would ask you to follow suit of the Ninevites. Repent fully and totally. Do not delay. 40 days is not literally given to the Ninevites. It was a figure of speech. It was a sense of time. But friends, now is the time for you to repent. Do not wait any longer. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 read, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do not wait. If you are away from God, if you are out of the will 
of God. If you find yourself trying to get it together on your own, hoping that you can quit the bad thing, start doing the good thing, friend, I'm telling you, you are without hope and trying to do it on your own. It is impossible. I've tried. You need God. There's a spiritual nature to repentance that none of us could ever do on our own. Lest the Holy Spirit enables you to do so. So I would encourage you today, don't wait. Repent. Turn from your wickedness. And this leads us to our third and final point, that God's mercy awaits the repentant. In verse 10 we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. And he did not do it. In like fashion, Jonah 3 kind of has this rapid fire succession of events, just like Jonah 1. God saw, God relented, God didn't do it. There are three theological principles that we can gain from this. First, God sees all, and He's watching and waiting, He's omniscient. Secondly, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. He desires that none would be lost. Sometimes I pray that Jesus would return today, this moment. Lord, come quickly. But then I think of all the lost souls that we have in our midst. Have you ever seen yourself or seen the people around you and noticed them maybe in a restaurant this happens to me often at coffee shops. I'm just sitting there for a moment, and I just think about all the souls around me who do not know Jesus. And I pray. We know that God desires that none should be lost, so we too, friends, should have that same desire. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is slow, or he is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The last theological principle that we can deduce from this text is that God did not do the thing that he said he was going to do. He relented. He is in full control of himself, not to be manipulated by man, not to be swayed even by man. He alone controls himself. He alone is in authority. He answers to himself. He has the final decision. Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 7 through 10 reads, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. God is merciful. He is in full control of himself, yet he seeks mercy in 2018, Stephanie Hines, who was the mother of two children, was in a car accident when a drunk 
driver hit her car, causing the death of her two small children. And as Stephanie came to terms with the fact that her children were gone and not coming back, at the sentencing hearing, she testified. And she asked the judge to have mercy on the driver. She didn't minimize the significance of what he had done, taking the lives of two innocent children. But she also understood that it was time to have mercy. God only expects us, friends, to have as much mercy on each other as he has on us. And no more. God only expects us to have as much mercy on each other as he has on us, as he's shown to us. Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 reads that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's love is reflected by his mercy. John 3, 16 and 17 reads, And God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that they might be saved through him. Friends, the challenge for us is to forgive others in light of God's mercy to us. We ought to also eagerly seek to be merciful to others. Is there unforgiveness in our hearts? Is there a cancer of unforgiveness in our hearts? Has someone sinned against you and has now demonstrated legitimate, sincere, spiritual repentance, then it's only right to forgive them. Romans chapter 11, verses 29 through 36, it's a bit lengthy, but I like to read it in its entirety. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who knows or who, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has been given a gift to him that he might repay it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In closing, I'd like to remind you of the idea of this sermon, that none are too far from receiving the mercy of God and abating his judgment 
when they turn from their wickedness and repent. There are two challenges in this message. One for the Christian and the other for the one who does not know the Lord. For the Christian, our job is to simply follow what Jonah has done, what God has commanded him to do. Arise, go, and proclaim. We cherish the Great Commission in this church. It's a part of our mission and our vision. But friends, there's a lesser commission given here that we too must follow. First, arise. The idea of arising means you have to get up. If your state of spiritual apathy towards your brother and sister is not causing you to move to action, then I would ask you to ask God for forgiveness. In North Suffolk alone, there are literally thousands of people who you interact with who do not know the Lord. Will we continue to sit in our pews, in our seats, and not arise to the challenge that God has given us. Go is the next command. We will go, friends, wherever there is a lost soul in this city, in this world, if God sends us, we will go. It is our privilege to do so. Are you going? Have you joined Pastor Steve on the Appalachian Trail? Have you joined Brother Robert on the Eastern Shore? Have you considered your neighbor? You don't have to go far. Arise and go to the yard next to yours. And friends, we are last to do the most important part, but to tell. Tell of God's goodness, of his mercy. Jonah had key information that gave the Ninevites a fighting chance if we just arise and go, well, that's good and well, that's nice. We can help some folks, build some houses perhaps, pass out a few bags of rice, that's good. But friends, if we ain't telling them nothing, they don't know the bad news in the good news. We have dozens of ministries here at this church that do just that. And if you find yourself without a role in one of them, I would challenge you. Reach out to us, because I guarantee you, we'll put you to work. And if you don't know what to do, do something. There's somebody that needs to hear your truth. There's someone that needs to know about the Christ who has set you free. Only if he has shown you mercy are you to share. And for the sinner amongst us today who is not repentant, to God. We notice in the text that repentance is first an act of the heart. It may have visual outcomes, it may have life changing outcomes, but true repentance happens first in the heart. Sometimes with people, we want them to change their ways, we want them to do better, stop acting this way and, and do this and that. Friends, what we want is a heart change. Let's think back for a second to the illustration of the DUI sentencing. The man who sat 
in that case was convicted of killing two innocent people. And as he sat on trial, the judge dropped a verdict, guilty. Imagine for a second that as he's waiting to receive his sentence, another walks in the courtroom. And as this man who has killed two small children is waiting to hear that his life is over and that he will be condemned for life, another walks in the room and says, hey, judge, I got it. I'll take the punishment for that man. I know he's guilty, and I know he did something horrible. You don't even know half the stuff that he's done, but you've gotten him for this one act, which one act of disobedience to God is enough to condemn us for life. The man steps in and says, hey, I got it. I'll take the charge. And the man walks away free. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus did. He took the cross for you, for me, for my sin, and for yours. Voluntarily, willingly, he walked up and said, no, I got it. They're good. Put their punishment on me. And he took our sins on his flesh as they nailed him to a cross and they hung him high. He looked down on those who mocked him and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friend, if you are here and there is a beat in your heart and there is air in your lungs and you have not repented, know now that God is waiting. But just as merciful as he is, he is also just. And he cannot, as much as it hurts, allow you to enter heaven unrepentant. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And with everything that we have within us, church, I would ask that you pray also that one would say, God, forgive me. See, Christ hung on that cross high, and they buried him, friends. But three days later, he rose triumphant from the tomb. We worship a living God who in heaven advocates for us. And he seeks the lost. And friend, if you find yourself lost today, we ask that you would come to the good shepherd. Please join me in prayer. Father God, forgive us for the lack of mercy that we show to each other. Thank you that you are so loving that you give us your Holy Spirit to convict us but Lord, we ask that that conviction would lead to godly repentance. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. We accept and acknowledge that you have died for our sins. You've forgiven us a second and a third and a fourth time. You've forgiven us countless times, Lord. We ask that you would come into the life of every unbeliever. Change their heart, Lord. Give them a posture of repentance. 
Help them to turn from their wicked ways and put them to work in this church, Lord. Help us, Lord, at Nansman River Baptist Church to arise, to go, and to tell your good news. Lord, we thank you that you sit high, yet you look low. That you are merciful and loving, yet just. Be with us this day, Father God, as we now praise you and as we now enter into a time of worship for your goodness and your love and mercy. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, please join us. Rise so that we can worship this great and merciful God.